This is the Innovation Engine podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation, platform modernization, and corporate innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine. For this episode, we're pleased to talk with New York Times reporter and author Trip Mickle about his book, After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. Tripp joined the New York Times earlier this year after spending more than eight years at the Wall Street Journal, where he wrote extensively about Apple's business, its executive leadership, the new products it launched, and some famous ones it didn't, and much more. Tripp has developed an extensive set of sources both inside and outside the company in nearly half a decade reporting on it, allowing him to lift the veil on the notoriously secret company both in print and in his new book. Tripp, welcome to the Innovation Engine, and thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Let me start by asking about the two main characters who feature prominently in the book, not surprisingly, post-Steve Jobs, uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook, and former chief design officer uh, Johnny Ive, who left the company for good in 2019. Why is the story of these two people in particular so fitting to tell the story about how Apple changed um, since Steve died? It's... It's uh, the type of thing you could argue is a little reductive when you put it in the context of the fact that they have 154,000 employees there. But I mean, these are easily the two most important figures at the company over the past decade and really since Steve Jobs re- returned to Apple in 1997. If you go back to, to, to that point and you, you, you start there, when Jobs returned, Apple was nearly bankrupt. And the reason that it that it rebounded and became such a such a dominant player in global business is because of Johnny Ive on one side and Tim Cook on the other. They were really kind of the two poles balanced by Steve Jobs that made Apple such a such a success. Johnny is the right brain creative person who who helped Steve Jobs come up with the product ideas and the product design that lent itself to things like the white earphones and earbuds that that were in the iPod that became such a cultural sensation when they were in the advertising. Tim Cook, on the other hand, comes in, inherits this mess of an operation system at Apple and, and fixes it. I mean, they had inventory and computers piling up. They were like spoiled vegetables going bad. He he comes in. He 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 reorganizes the operations team. He begins using China to begin manufacturing a lot of their product, and they're able to make it at a low low price. Make at a low price what Johnny Ive is to, able to design that can command a high price. So this is kind of the yin and the yang of 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 Apple. Really, it's it's design brilliance and and creativity balanced by operational excellence. And so when Steve Jobs died. Like that balancing force that Jobs provided to those two sides of Apple is lost. And what Apple spent the better part of the past decade doing is figuring out how to function without its balancing force. So interesting to me. I'm just wondering if you take Steve Jobs out of the equation. And I mean, I, I probably once a month send around some Steve Jobs video on, on innovation or, or some quote from Johnny Ive about design. With Tim Cook, with Johnny Ive now gone, I mean, does does Apple still? I mean, it's thought of as the, one of the more innovative companies. It's it's the, the sort of benchmark for innovation. It, 
can it still hold, does it still hold that reputation? Is it still possible that they can remain innovative in a post Steve, post Johnny world with Tim Cook? The, the spirit of innovation is still alive at Apple. The execution of that innovation or the execution of, of the ambitions of the company when it comes to its innovations has faltered um, easily. You, you can look at some of the projects they've undertaken over the past decade and, and can see evidence of that. They were, they were slow to adapt to the development of the smart speaker market Amazon beat them there. But even when Apple decided to enter that market, you know, typically what it does, it comes in after somebody is like a first mover and it introduces a product that is so much superior than what somebody else has created that it becomes the, the, the most popular product in, in, uh, in a particular category. Or in the case of the iPhone, maybe they don't sell more iPhones than Android phones, but they rake in like 95% of the profit. So it, it becomes the most profitable product in a category. They haven't really been able to do that as effectively in the past decade. Really, the last product you can point to and say they did that with was the watch. And that was driven by, by Johnny and, uh, and his aspiration to create a, a smartwatch that would kind of free people of, of, of their dependency on their iPhone. You, quibble with the success of the watch, but there's no doubt that that was kind of the last new product category that the com- company embarked on and introduced. In the span of a decade, that's a lot less than what they did under Jobs himself. Yeah, I know. People have mentioned the watch is not being as successful, but it, isn't it the best-selling watch in the world? I mean, it's, it's, it, it came into a category that was analog, made, made it digital, and, and is the best-selling product in that particular category. So... It seems very Apple to me in that sense, but of course not the iPhone. Right, right. No, 100%, you're right. Um, But it's, yeah, it's not the iPhone in the sense that there are far fewer people who are willing to buy a watch and put it on their wrist than, you know, feel like they absolutely have to have a smartphone in order to function in society this day and age, right? You you know, whether it's, you know, because you, you need to satisfy your own personal itch to be on social media or you need to do, you know, business work and respond to emails or, you know, Slack. Like people have to have one of those in their pocket. They don't need a, a fitness watch or a or a health watch or whatever. It, it's really a, you know, a case by case, you know, type situation where some people decide they need it. Um, and many people don't. Well it's funny I'm the the poster child there. I do not wear a watch. You do. Uh, I have my iPhone next to me. I'm talking to you on a MacBook and I have my AirPods in. So I am definitely the reason why there's probably a case for the watch not being successful, but totally get your point there. And, and so one of the things in the book, which is I found really interesting, is the different ways in which innovation has happened under Tim Cook. So under, under Steve, innovation took the form of, of product innovation. Under Cook, product innovation happens... It seems more, at least for me as a as an Apple product buyer, um, seems to happen more incrementally. And 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 Tim seems, as you mentioned, focuses more on innovation coming in the areas of supply chain. Is there are things much more operational now at Apple? And and is that why perhaps you you argue that it's lost its soul a little bit, that innovation is not at the forefront, that sort of the operational excellence at Apple has taken more of a prominent role? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to straddle 
what you're saying like a little bit and say that yes, the company is more focused on operations, but it's more focused on operations out of necessity. If you think about it, when Steve Jobs died, they were making about 20 million iPhones a year. Now they're making 200 million a year, roughly. When you have to make that many of any one product exactly the same and to a high level of sophistication, you need to start earlier in the development process, which invariably means you know, some options for innovation are foreclosed. Um, there's, a, there's a moment that gets a brief mention in the book that, that sheds some light on this. And it's, it's this, this time period when Jobs was still there. And this was related to the iPod, which they were also making many millions of. And Johnny Ive had an idea for how to change the design of the iPod that he felt would like really revolutionize that product and breathe new life into it late in its lifespan. But he had it two weeks after the time period when the deadline had passed for product to begin being assembled on manufacturing lines in China. I mean, like literally by two weeks. And that meant he had to wait an entire year, which meant that by the time that idea would be introduced, it would likely be stale. So it was just abandoned. And those are the type of constraints you're dealing with when you're that much larger as a company, you're serving that many more customers. And that's been one of the challenges that have, have forced Apple to be more operationally sophisticated in order to introduce the innovation that it has. Uh, to your second question about the the title, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, that is what the what the book is getting at a, a little bit is that that because of the way the company changed, there are moments like like I just spoke about with Johnny Ive where he can't be as creative as he would have been when the company was smaller and more nimble. Um, so in a way, as a consequence of the company's size, creativity, which once led to commerce, now plays second fiddle, right? It's almost like commerce is what dictates when creativity can happen. And that, that an- anecdote around the iPod really crystallizes that in a lot of ways. You mentioned this in a different way uh, in the book. Uh, there was an anecdote about how the company was structured under Steve, that it was a relatively flat organization with very few VPs. And that structure, of course, in a smaller company, and smaller in in Apple world, but smaller company uh, leads to more innovation. How has that structure changed since Steve's death and, and since Tim has taken over? The structures remain the same. I mean, it's still flat and and people report directly. I think Tim Cook has something on the order of like, you know, a dozen plus direct reports. Uh, the difference is that Steve Jobs was very much the the autocrat who was making decisions on what people should be doing and like very final about that. I mean, he he was dictating where products should go. He was he was the one who was bouncing between divisions such as software, hardware, and design, and then stitching together what those three groups were doing in a way that gave you a kind of seamless product experience when something was introduced. In his absence, if you think of the company as like a circle, like Steve put the creative divisions of the company at the center, and he he lived at the center of those creative aspects, you know, hardware, software, design, et cetera, marketing. 
Tim Cook was on the outside in operations, you know, a second circle outside. And basically what happens when Steve dies and Tim Cook becomes CEO is that operations, the, the outside ring, goes to the center of the company to, to areas that it just didn't know that well. And as a result, you know, Tim Cook, who, who Jobs himself described as not a product person, makes the decision that, that what we have to do is build consensus among these creative leaders that we have that Steve, Steve worked to kind of corral and direct forward. These people are going to have to corral themselves and direct themselves forward. And so it becomes product development more by committee. And, and that's, that's a big fundamental change in the way Apple operates. Um, one example that speaks to the challenges, I guess, that arose as a, as a consequence of this is there's a moment where after, after Amazon had introduced the Echo speaker, uh, Apple's exploring the idea of developing its own smart speaker. And, a, and, and its hardware, its product design uh, leader, Dan Riccio, spins up kind of an option for it, brings it in, shares it with Tim Cook. Tim Cook asks him a bunch of questions about that. And Dan leaves thinking, well, I guess, you know, if he's not sold on doing this. I mean, he's he just asked, asked a ton of questions and didn't say, okay, let's go. And so he spins the project down. And several months later, it gets an email from Tim Cook about Amazon's success with the Echo and realizes, oh, crap. He was just asking because he wanted to know about this. We need to, we need to spin this thing back up. And, and that's kind of the, the challenge for, the, for a company that was used to getting clear direction at the outset. It's now having to try to, to, to find its own direction internally in ways that it, that it wasn't doing before under jobs. There's always great anecdotes about Apple. Um, I mean, there's Aaron Sorkin screenplays written about Apple over the years. Um, and you had a few in your book that I thought were, were great and, 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 and awesome to share on the podcast. So there's one in particular about Johnny Ive and a bucket of red paint. Can you share that anecdote with, with folks listening? Yeah, I think it's important to... to to consider the anecdote in context of of the way colleagues looked at Johnny Ive, they kind of they kind of wondered wondered if he had X ray vision, and and part of the reason was he could just see things that they thought were invisible to them. And there's this moment that I describe in the book where Johnny travels with a with a couple of colleagues to Japan to review uh, manufacturers' work on uh, on a laptop. And they bring in the laptop part. It's a base of the laptop. And Johnny looks at it and his hands start to tremble and shake a little bit. And one of his colleagues realizes, oh, crap, Like he's really not happy with these guys' work. And he's about to unload on them. Um, and he wants to head off Johnny before Johnny just rips rips these these ja- these nice Japanese manufacturers a new one. And he, and he grabs a red pen and he hands it to Johnny and says, Johnny... Why don't you just circle the flaws in this, and uh, and I'll just work with them to to correct the er- the errors. Like no big deal, it's fine. And Johnny turns back and looks at him. He goes, "I got a better idea. Why don't you give me a bucket of red paint, dip this in it, and I'll wipe off what's right." And and that just spoke to and like the guy. Meanwhile, is looking at the part, and he's like seeing no imperfections whatsoever. But to Johnny, it was just a purely flawed part. And that was the kind of 
the kind of like precision and precise eye that he would bring to, to some of the manufacturing elements and product that they were developing. I totally appreciate Johnny I for that. I've, I've been in that situation. Maybe not, definitely not with hardware, but with presentations where I think people think I'm insane because I'll see something that's not centered or aligned or a font that's the wrong size. And they'll be like, what's wrong with that? Like, I, how can you not see that there's something wrong there? So I, I'm maybe he's, he's definitely my spirit animal there. And there was another story that you had similar where uh, he was at an airport bar and saw um, a bunch of imperfections. Again, where other people would not have noticed that. Can you share that anecdote as well? Yeah, yeah. They're on a they're on a trip back after after several weeks during Star, SARS working in in Shenzhen on uh, assembly lines, and they're in the Hong Kong airport uh, at a bar, and it's it's a like a thirty foot bar of pure silver metal. And Johnny looks down at and he sees he he sighs and looks at the person beside him, and he says, "I can see every seam in this bar." And the and the guy who's sitting beside him looks down the bar and looks at Johnny and looks down the bar again and he's like he can see nothing like he just sees pure smooth metal from one end to the other and sympathetically says to Johnny your life must be fucking miserable man um, and, because he just had a way of seeing things that that nobody else could see there's there's one other one that like doesn't get quite the the thrust it should have in the book that I heard about but. When Johnny sets up a studio near his home in um, in Pacific Heights in San Francisco, he he puts a pure glass table on what amounts to like four legs. So just imagine glass, you know, glass like I don't know how thick, but like a conference table, pretty large on just four legs. And he would walk in at at some at a certain point, several I don't know months after it had been there, maybe a year and a half. And would say, table's bowed, we need to replace it. And people would come in and like stare at this table and be like, what does he see? Like, you know, like they couldn't even see like that it was like bowed a centimeter, but you know, nobody wanted to argue with him because they also knew that he had a more of a precise eye for things than they did. They'd just go ahead and replace the glass table and bring something new in. I love that. I totally, I, I, I feel so much, uh, so many feels about that right now because I totally get that feeling that you have of things just being slightly off and, and it probably, I'd probably adjust pictures that are hanging on my walls every single day because it just seems off by like half a centimeter uh, and I have to adjust it. So I get that maybe, maybe OCD in some cases is a good thing. So we talked about innovation. We talked about sort of the changes now Apple doesn't seem to be putting out as many products at least at the clip or, or the perception that there's not as many new innovative products. One of the things I've heard about for a long time, and it's been mentioned in the press for years, uh, definitely as it relates to you know innovations in the electric car space with Tesla, is the, uh, the, the concept of the Apple car uh, codename Project Titan. Where, where does that sit i know i've heard about and by the way, i hate apple carplay i'll say that it's like it's one of the worst products that apple makes but if you're thinking about apple car versus like the first four right into the car with apple carplay like where does this particular project sit and what is it it's uh at this point like the 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 latest reporting and the best reporting which has been out of bloomberg on it you have forecasts that something won't arrive before 2025, but they're continuing to work on a car. Meantime, 
they they introduced a revised version of CarPlay earlier this year. You may have seen that where they're proposing that it take over the entire dash of a car so that it provides everything from the speed the car is driving to you know to your stereo and and uh, and some of the apps that you might access while you're in while you're in the vehicle right now. Very different experience than what they've than what they've provided historically from CarPlay perspective. The, the project itself began circa 2015 as, as Apple was rotating out of its work on, on the watch. Engineers were looking for something big to take on. And, and that's really what most people go to Apple to do. And this was something that they decided to embark on. But it became kind of a, a project, a project that was um, that was challenged by differing views about the direction it should go, and that's indicative of what's happened without that that kind of guiding force and and kind of final voice that Steve Jobs was. Basically, on one side, you had a, a group of of engineers who wanted to essentially disrupt the electrical vehicle market that that Tesla was building at that time. And and outflank Tesla in terms of owning that market by introducing a superior product. On the other side, you had Johnny Ive championing the idea of, well, look, if we're going to do a car, it needs to be fully autonomous. Like, why are we going to mess with a car and just introduce what already exists? Um, we need to get out ahead and be like early with a superior technology. And in 2015. You know, a lot of people were optimistic that full autonomy would be here by 2021. I mean, the president of Lyft famously predicted that we'd all be riding around in robot taxis by 2021. That has not happened. In fact, we're still a long ways off from from realizing those um, those AI AI techniques that would allow us to have full autonomy. And so, the project has been mired in this kind of tension between differing views for some time. And never gotten the full, clear direction that it would need to to prosper and and, and deliver a product. Yeah, I, just so many things there. Uh, so many comments to make. One is, I mean, I saw an ad this morning. It was I don't even know who it was uh, in the ad, or whether it was an organization or a person, where they're trying to get Congress to stop autonomous vehicles, the autonomous vehicle software from Tesla. It said it's the worst piece of software and it should be stopped. And I was like, what, what ad is this? I'm just so confused by it. It's the first time I ever saw it. So that was interesting that it is one of those things where may, maybe even the technology and the software is there, but there's a lot of other considerations that need to be made, including political and sort of like insurance and liability decisions. The other thing is just thinking about CarPlay and how that's been extended. I mean, that is not the the sort of playbook for Apple. Their software usually is on their own devices. So the the new CarPlay, maybe maybe it's why I don't like CarPlay now, but the new CarPlay integrating fully into somebody else's hardware in an automobile is like so interesting to me. It I'm I'm really excited by it. But man, that is a daunting product um, for Apple to take on. Um, taking over the full experience in a car and hardware that they didn't create that's not centralized through Apple. It's it's just really interesting to me. I'm curious to see how that goes. Yeah, not to mention controversial for the auto industry as well. Do you want to give over kind of 
I don't know. The OS for your car. Right, right. right. Like the 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 uh the brain for your car to Apple. Um like I don't I don't know that you want to do that. Um and that's and that's where things should get interesting over the next few years as as you you see whether or not Apple by virtue of iPhone availability has more power and sway over automakers than automakers have over their own their own customer base. So interesting. Um, curious to see how that all plays out, especially if they're going to actually come out with a car at some point. So may- maybe something that seems less, maybe more brick and mortar, not necessarily on the topic of or normal conversation about Apple, but they did design. And Johnny Ive was a, a, a large part of this design, this, this large headquarters, new headquarters in Cupertino. And that was prior, clearly prior to there being a pandemic. Do you think that that new headquarters is a distraction, sort of a waste of money by Apple? Or do you see it being something that could actually enable innovation and collaboration? That headquarters, as the book kind of spells out, is so intertwined with Jobs himself that it that it became something that they they almost had to do. I mean, you know, in a way, we think about Apple as a company, but also for the people who work there and work closely with Jobs, like it could feel like a family, right? And so when he died, and this was his kind of essentially dying wish that they build this headquarters, there was there was little choice for the people who remained but to fulfill that that dream of his. The timing of building a five billion dollar campus, opening it right before a pandemic, is is less than ideal. Obviously, right? Um, not to mention you've got all the you know the insane costs of living in the Bay Area and, and complications along those lines. Plus, Apple's out already really outgrown. It was it was outgrowing the campus it was building as it was building it. In fact, like you know Tim Cook at a certain point during the development of the of the campus, as the book notes. Uh, decides to increase the headcount and and make desks closer together because they needed to. They were just hiring that many people and they didn't anticipate that. Did it distract the company? It certainly became a product in and of itself. Um, does that sap energy from other things that the company could be doing? You could argue that the design team that spent a good bit of time like focusing on how rounded and polished the elevator buttons were could have been using that time on developing, let's say, this AR headset that is on the horizon. You could also argue that, you know, multitasking is not like beyond these people and they could they they can they can devote time to elevator buttons and and a headset, um, which is what they chose to do. The challenge is we haven't seen the headset, so all we can do is judge the elevator buttons. Which there, it's a beautiful elevator. It's really kind of amazing because it's got curved instead of like an elevator that's boxy like you're accustomed to with right angles. It's got obviously got curved corners and all the sides and rounded buttons, and it feels it feels like you're riding in an iPhone. Um, that that all was a sacrifice for the company, though. You know, getting that precision and that kind of like excellence inside a building meant a degree of of uh, opportunity cost for the company in terms of other work it could have been doing. So, Trip, this is the fun part. Not that the rest of this wasn't fun, but this is the fun part of our conversation. We're going to do this a little special today. We're going to do the Apple version of our speed round questions, uh, given the topic. So I think I know the answer to this question, but given the subject matter, iPhone or Android? iPhone. 
Of course. Makes sense. Other than the perhaps Walter Isaacson book on Steve Jobs, who are your must-read or must-listen-to tech journalists? Oh, uh, must-read are Shira Ovide and Mike Isaac at the New York Times, Elliot Brown and Kirsten Grind at the Wall Street Journal. Must-listen. Uh, I love Vergecast. Um, big fan of Neela and and uh, and David Pierce. Awesome. And it makes sense that the journal and the, the times uh, would play a large part in there. I'll, I'll, I'll ask this question in two different ways. You can answer whichever you like. So what's the oldest piece of Apple technology you own? Or you can answer it as like, what's the oldest piece of Apple technology that you remember using? But you can answer both. Fit. I remember using a, you know, a mag to play Oregon Trail way back in the day. And then I, I think I've, I've still got uh, an old iPod Touch in... Uh, in a drawer here, for sure. Very cool. Yeah, mine is going to date me. I remember using an Apple IIc and also to play Oregon Trail, uh, interestingly enough. And then I would say my oldest piece that I still own is the original. I might have an original iPod um, somewhere. Definitely have an original iPhone somewhere in a drawer, which is funny that you keep and then hold on to these things. We answered this question before, but I'll ask again, uh, are you wearing an Apple Watch as we speak? I, I am wearing an Apple Watch, but the, the reason may humor people... I mean, I, I the first one that I bought, I bought before I went in to interview Tim Cook for the first time because I didn't want him to ask me why I didn't have one and like waste time talking about the Apple Watch. So I just I just went ahead and got one. It was kind of like, you know, to to make sure that I could maximize my time and questions with Tim Cook the first time I interviewed him. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember I just worked in, you know, uh, different industries before. And I remember we would literally buy if we were going into pitch Lenovo, we'd have to buy a Lenovo laptop to make sure, even if everybody was using back, you'd have to go in and make sure everybody had a Lenovo when you're going into pitch Lenovo. And I think that's so important um, when you're trying to connect with folks. Make sure that you use technology. That's something I tell my team all the time is make sure if you're going to make any spelling mistakes. Do not make spelling mistakes or pronunciation mistakes on the actual clients that we're going to speak to. Trip, this has been awesome. I'm such an Apple fan. Um, have been since the Apple IIc. So a very, uh, very old uh, Apple plan. So really appreciate your time today. Love the book. Um, and thanks for spending uh, your time on the Innovation Engine. Thanks for having me. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. This has been an episode of the Innovation Engine, a podcast from Three Pillar Global. If you have questions, comments, or guest suggestions, email us at info at threepillarglobal.com. Three